Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Monday, May 16th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. And this is Alicia Halliday to give you the weekly rundown of INSAR 2022. Since it was in Austin, Texas, I'll be using the word y'all a lot. Those of you who are with me in Texas got the full Texas experience. No mask wearing. I hope you ate lots of barbecue, tacos, sweet tea, and even a Planned Parenthood rally at the Capitol. There was traffic up and down I-35, live music, and heat. It was crazy hot for at least us Northeasterners. And if I know anything about public health, I'm probably getting COVID soon, which means I won't be doing a podcast next week. So I wanted to share this with you ASAP. In recapping the meeting, I wanted to flip the schedule a little bit and start out the podcast with a summary of Saturday's plenary speech from Dr. Evdokio Anagnostu, who spoke about the heterogeneity in autism, which seemed to be a theme, again, across the meeting. In fact, just like the Austin skyline, much has changed about the understanding of autism in the last 30 years, including the profile of people with autism. What did autism look like in, say, 2000 when the first INSAR meeting was held? One study led by Susan Coe demonstrated that cohorts like Agree that were around back then, those kids show different profiles than, say, of Spark that's just started, but there's more on that study later. But the idea behind Dr. Anagnostu's presentation is just that, heterogeneity. Basically, her title could have been written, Autism Means Different Things to Different People. Dr. Anagnostu mentioned from the beginning that she is a child neurologist, When people come to her, they come to her as patients looking for help. The kids she sees are complex. Again, they're coming to her not just with autism, but an array of issues, some associated symptoms that may be debilitating like seizures. So the families she sees may not represent the entire broad spectrum of autism, but they do represent some people with autism. These people maybe start out with something like a delay in those milestones, then they get an autism diagnosis, then added on other psychiatric issues and debilitating internalizing symptoms, the type of symptoms that lead to suicide. They wait for services and appointments with the doctor, and they also understand they cannot wait for society to adapt to their needs. They need the help of a doctor now. Her question was this, how do we do a better job at ensuring that the right people get the right care and the researchers in the community are attending to the needs of everyone in the community. After all, autism is a spectrum, a spectrum of strengths, challenges, and disabilities. Not everyone with a diagnosis will be a doctor or a lawyer or even a graduate from college. Not everyone will live independently or even semi-independently. Not everyone will have the same level of family support. Some need pharmacological therapies to best live their lives, and others do not want to be treated at all. So how can we best understand and help those across the spectrum? So Dr. Anagnostu looked at this issue of heterogeneity, and she looked to determine whether the diagnostic labels matched up with what was being found in the brain. In order to do this, she started by studying a group of people in Canada, now that's where she's from, with something called the PON study. These people who were in ranges from anywhere between two and 25 had either autism or ADHD, or OCD, or some had a mix of all three. She looked at their brains by looking at the connectivity and the structure, 
to determine if she could group them by biological similarity, and if she did, would those biological similarities fall into the same categories as their diagnostic labels? In other words, if she looked at the structure and function of the autism brain, would it match up to the label of autism? Or would they have been grouped differently based on what they found in the brain? Would everyone with autism have the same pattern regardless of what their co-occurring or comorbid diagnosis they had? Or would they match up to ADHD instead of autism? And if you had both, what do the brains look like? They use machine learnings to do this. So machines don't know what the label is. She put in the information about the brain and the machines look across lots of data points in the brain and it groups together those similarities regardless of what the diagnosis is. So the question was, if you gather large samples with different issues like ADHD, autism, OCD, and other people who don't have any of these things, can you distinguish the groups based on their diagnosis? Well, the answer was no. What did the computer group together? Well, they grouped the brains together based on things like adaptive functioning, hyperactivity, and cognition, not ADHD, not ASD, and not OCD. From the biological perspective of the brain, it did not know autism from ADHD. Another study presented at INSAR also showed small differences in the structure of the brain with ADHD versus ASD, but that looked at the predetermined diagnosis first. If you go by biology first, they don't group together based on their diagnostic labels. They group together based again on cognition, adaptive behavior, and hyperactivity. There was a cluster of ASD in those with rare genetic disorders, but those individuals tended to have lower cognitive abilities and were clustered with the cognitive disability group. So the summary is autism is not the same for everyone. People do not experience autism the same. The presence of groupings based on brain structure similarities do not align with the diagnostic label, although they do align with cognition and adaptive behavior and hyperactivity. The diagnostic labels are not now helping clarify the heterogeneity. I'm not even sure that these diagnostic labels are helping people with autism. People with autism I talk to, either in person or on Facebook, say they're not even impaired by their autism symptoms. They're impaired by co-occurring conditions. But what about people who are challenged by their autism? Are these two different groups entirely? There is also differences not just in brains, but the way that people with autism feel about what their service and intervention priorities are. Using the same methodologies, groups in the UK and Canada brought together stakeholders to determine what the top 10 intervention or treatment priorities were. And those two groups from two different countries, each even speaking mostly the same language, there was no overlap. So people in the UK felt that treatment priorities were completely different than what people in Canada thought their treatment priorities were. So in terms of what autistic people want or need in terms of support, again, autism means different things to different people, even by where you live. Now, the investigation of traits is different than those that require help. Do traits of autism constitute a level of concern? We all have them and that's okay. 
We all have them and they're evolutionarily preserved. The human condition varies in diversity and that does not require a medical model. Strengths help make better conditions. But people with deficits need help. People with traits of autism but not a diagnosis? Probably, but that's up to them. Again, autism means different things to different people. And that means people want different things studied and what they want studied should be a priority. People with autism traits, do they need help? Possibly, but that's kind of up to them. Again, autism means different things to different people. But it does shape what people want studied, what should be a priority, and what should be less of a priority. But that wasn't the only thing at INSAR. Eva Loth from King's College London in the press conference outlined some major themes. And I'm adding to them, so be patient. Don't worry, this isn't the longest podcast I've ever done. So first was the COVID-19 pandemic. This was a significant collective experience. Hybrid was important to have this meeting and to connect with colleagues around the world. And we're wondering if INSAR will be hybrid in 2023. There were some surprising but very preliminary findings in a couple of panels and posters that looked at the COVID pandemic. And it seemed like they were different patterns of mental health care challenges during the pandemic. When the pandemic first hit, it was mass chaos and people's routines were upended. But once people settled down again from September 2020 to July of 2021, some people with autism showed a decrease in internalizing symptoms like depression, and then it returned back to normal. Again, people with autism experience autism differently. For some, depression got better and then went back to where it was before. For others, it continues to stay high. But what about the group of resilient individuals who took solace in being alone during the pandemic and having a different new normal that they liked? What can we learn about them? There will probably be another pandemic, so how can we handle things better? Another theme was collaboration with autistic people. There were sessions on stigma, the double empathy theory, and measurement development. The meeting had quiet poster sessions, virtual interactions with presenters, and coffee breaks where early career researchers could connect with established scientists. There is far more attention this year to sensory issues and mental health features and looking at sensory differences with a functional brain approach. Now, while those with cognitive disability are not represented either at the meeting or primarily in research, there was a few presentations that recognized that those with intellectual and cognitive disabilities need different services and supports. Not more, not less, but different. And while some people in the community cringe at the word profound, a panel on Thursday morning, which included Alex Plank, who himself is on the spectrum, pointed out that there are groups of people with very different needs. While some people could travel to INSAR to represent their community, others were unable to have a competitive job, wouldn't be able to get on a plane, couldn't travel, and but they needed 24-hour support. On a special interest group on Friday morning, I talked about those with intellectual disabilities and how they are not represented in research. And I know why. Sometimes it can be impossible. Tasks that require sitting still for long periods of time and even without the greatest amount of comp accommodations just makes it not possible. Now, another small group meeting of a group of scientists that were talking about measures to assess strengths and challenges agreed 
that the measures that we're using are not appropriate for people with autism, whether you spoke or did not speak, whether you had an IQ of 150 or 50. The wording of questions is confusing. It treats everyone with the same level of cognitive ability like, are you happy? Not everyone can express distress the same way. Measures used in typical people should not automatically be used to understand those that are neurodiverse or those that are profoundly affected. So scientists, capture intellectual functioning and cognitive ability in your studies. We do not propose, as a matter of fact, we warn against you lumping everybody together, but it should be collected and possibly stratified. There's an ever-growing trend of not reporting this important information and research findings, and it clouds interpretation of the data. Cognitive ability does matter. Can't do it? Explain why. Is it money? Come to ASF and get an accelerator grant to do it. Is it too difficult? Okay, but understand that your findings are not generalizable to the general autism community. Frankly, it's even unlikely that research in those exclusively with intellectual disability and little speaking ability are always generalizable to those that can, but we don't know that because so many times people with intellectual disability are not included. In the first keynote of the week, Damian Fair from the University of the great state of Minnesota discussed how big data and collaboration might address this heterogeneity problem. With smaller samples, you're finding spurious findings. What really needs to happen is people need to pull their data together and collaborate to make sure the findings that they find can be reproducible. This means that we need to appreciate heterogeneity in behavior and neuroanatomy and developmental trajectories and understand that this sort of thing needs to be done. Scientists also need access to big data and they need to bridge the human models to the animal models. And they also need to involve non-traditional organizations in cognitive neuroscience. So that doesn't just mean INSAR, that means groups like ADHD groups and OCD groups and Tourette's groups and other types of groups. He's very worried about publication bias, which means that things that only positive data are published and not negative data. And so sometimes studies are, are replicated, but never find the same thing. And people keep doing the same things over and over again. We also need to improve diversity in study teams and we need to improve diversity in study populations. We also want to make sure that we're going to attract and retain talent in science. And we want big data resources and open sharing structures to provide opportunities to scale up these large data sets. We also want to make sure we're not just studying one thing, we're studying things like behavior, brain activity, eye tracking, heart rate, immunological assays and all sorts of other things. Don't just focus on one thing at a time, focus on multiple things at a time. However, of course, there's always problems with this, but he showed us how we should get through it. And the only way we can deal with heterogeneity is deal with reproducibility. So how about treatments and supports? Well, for those stoners out there, I'm just kidding, there was a new can cannabidiol study. I know, that's a joke. CBD comes from the marijuana plant, but is not act psychoactive. Zynerba Pharmaceuticals is testing out a CBD gel in those with Fragile X, a high percentage of which have ASD. 
There was some improvement, but mostly in those with complete methylation of the FMR gene. Want to know why stratifications by genetics is important and why genetics is important in general? This is why, to predict treatment response. Another theme of the meeting was milestones. How can those developmental milestones that help parents make note of the development of their children and infants to help them figure out when something is not going according to plan, how could that signal the need for early intervention and help with prediction? James Regg from Georgia Tech used machine learning approach to characterize the verbal ability over 16 months to predict who will become speaking or who will become non-speaking or minimally verbal. It turns out that the more time between milestones or the time stuck in the previous milestones, things like clinician-documented spoken words, those things predicted the presence of later verbal ability. For example, in those who are minimally verbal, they were delayed by many, many months, whereas most people spent about three months in each developmental milestones. Another way to look at milestones was presented by Susan Quo from Broad, who is now starting her ASF funding as a postdoc. She looked at 17,000 people with autism across four different data sets. About 5,000 were genotyped, and they were compared to about 4,000 siblings without autism or an intellectual disability. So in order to predict outcome, she combined all of this information, including the genetics, including the diagnosis, the impact of the diagnosis, the genetics, and the time to milestone attainment. She found delays of one to two years in those with autism and co-occurring intellectual disability. Those diagnosed early had the most variable and most extreme delays in things like speaking, speaking phrase, bladder, and bowel control. She found that males with intellectual disability had the most severe and most variable delays, followed by females with intellectual disability, then followed by those with autism and no dis intellectual disability. The siblings were close to population norms. So what did this mean? Developmental milestone attainment is highly variable in ASD, even more variable in those with intellectual disability. More severe and more developmental delays for certain groups, like those having co-occurring intellectual disability or those carrying a generic, genetic variant, were diagnosed by age five. Those who were ascertained in earlier cohorts, like AGREE, had the most variation, validating the idea that if you are looking at a cohort that was collecting information from many years ago, it may not be representative of what autism today is. What does that mean for scientists who want to combine data sets? Well, more to come. And developmental milestones are things that parents have under their control in terms of detection. You don't need advanced clinical skills. You don't need new technology. You just need to go to the ASF website and learn the signs. And if things are not going according to the milestones, run to your doctor and do not back down. And speaking of prediction of function, what are predictors of language ability in people with autism besides that milestone development? About 30% are minimally verbal or non-speaking. How early can this be detected and what goes into it? According to baby siblings research studies, those with lower language skills were more likely to receive a diagnosis. There's also association between brain thickness area and surface area before language deficits were present. Bigger cortical thickness was associated with better language skills across all sorts of brain regions. And this was outside the traditional regions like Broca's areas and Wernicke's areas were for decades thought to be the centers of language in the brain. It turns out language is actually more diffuse than these two 
focused areas. And early deviations from typical brain development may produce cascading effects, which later end up with language, but could start out with things like sensory issues and motor issues. Baby studies also helped understanding in the early behavioral features that were important. This was shown by Meredith Pecunis at Boston University, who used a large database, including 796 infants across 13 centers. She actually used the baby siblings research database and looked at early predictors of language outcomes. She looked at all the things at once that have been previously linked to language abilities. They include fine motor skills, maternal education, and early gestures. Gestures and maternal education levels were the ones that had the strongest predictors of language ability. This can tell us which infants need the greatest support on language, and this study is going to be published soon. Now, speaking of early intervention, that was another theme. The Lifetime Achievement Award went to Sally Rogers, one of the leading pioneers in early interventions who dedicated her life using early supports and intervention to bring people out of institutions into the community. Sally Rogers also talked about how support in one area of deficits like joint attention, sensory issues, imitation, executive function, they all impact the others through development. She also talked about how much intervention is enough or sufficient. It turns out that kids did the same on 20 hours of naturalistic behavior intervention as they did on 40 hours of discrete trial training. So it doesn't matter what type of intervention, children who are taught well will progress well. People can be sent spending their time and money in different ways than 40 hours a week of intervention. If you want to learn more about this, go to the Autism Navigator and you can watch videos and learn about how to make the most out of the time you have with your infant or toddler and use those teachable moments so that they become opportunities for early intervention and support. Those count towards those 40 hours a week or those 20 hours a week. She also pointed out there have been major breakthroughs in early identification and intervention, but hopefully the adults of tomorrow are better because of it. We also need to make sure that everyone has access to intervention and we need to spend more money helping people with autism that want to be helped. As for many, according to Elizabeth Weir, chronic medical issues get worse with age. And this includes almost all organ system in the body. And y'all, that includes it all. GI issues, eye issues, bone, neuro, skin, respiratory, endocrinology, blood. There was just an overall difference in chronic co-occurring conditions. And autistic adults have different interrelationships between organ system than autism children. Greater associations and stronger associations between these organ systems. And they're also more likely to die of COVID-19, probably because of these pre-existing conditions. So for families looking for the best intervention supports, what should they be looking for? It's not what's in the name. Remember, the name is not as important as the ability of the therapist to provide meaningful moments. So what is required? A curriculum, a data-driven taking data or a data-based approach, a generalist model. Everybody is delivering everything across the whole curriculum and children are getting lots of practices on different skills, a focus on language development and a fidelity on the implementations. So making sure that there's been a way to determine that delivering the interventions are done in the way they were intended and frequent learning opportunities. Using some of these naturalistic behavioral interventions, you can have 18 learning opportunities in three minutes of play, and they're focused on child-directed teaching with a high interest and motivation.
It feels like I've gone on for way too long already. But there were also other important thing, themes. Now, I don't have any data about this, but I feel like there's more focused research on the experiences of different races and ethnicities. For example, I went to posters on how clinicians interact with black, Hispanic, and white families, which are different, and how children in schools with different races are classified educationally, which are different. I don't propose to have the answers, and this is not something I want to just touch on, so I want to do a separate podcast on this. We are still combating systemic racism, even in 2022. Sometimes I feel as a white girl, I'm not in a position to speak for those who are black or Hispanic or even any other race or culture. But I'd like to believe that those of us in privileged positions, like being white and like getting a good education like me, should be the ones who are standing up for and advocating for more equality in other communities. Again, autism does not mean the same thing for every person. A black man with autism who has to worry about an even higher likelihood of a police officer misinterpreting his behaviors as dangerous when they are part of his autism is not the same experience as a white woman with autism who wants to be able to better express herself and freely wave and flap. Yes, they both require better understandings of behaviors by the community and reduce stigma and training of the non-autistic community, but you're not talking about the same thing. Race matters and sometimes just in a different way. I'm, again, I'm not black, I'm just reporting on the science. Now, one topic I didn't touch on this year was genetics. Well, so many people have misunderstood genetics as being a reason for eugenics and enough people in the community have called genetics research useless and not helpful for the day-to-day -day lives of people with autism that there were very few presentations about genetics this year. But Joe Buxbaum from the Seaver Autism Center explained why it does make a difference in the lives of people today. Take people with rare genetic disorders. These are symptoms that are caused by a mutation of a gene associated with ASD, and ASD rates are very, very high in these syndromes. And these people have a different type of ASD. For example, take Phelan McDermott syndrome. They experience very, very high levels of hyporeactivity, more so than those without a genetic diagnosis. They're different biologies after all. They also experience a mid-puberty regression in psychiatric issues, actually known what is called decompensation. Midway through puberty and maybe even a little older, kids with PMS experience irritability, aggression, and psychosis. And it occurs through the age of 25, and sometimes it's treated and sometimes it can't be treated. This common thread, the gene mutation. Also, I want to put a call out for patient advocacy groups that serve specific genetic communities. They go from powerless to feel empowered by having a family that they may not be genetically, they may not be related to by blood, but in fact, they come together, they share experiences, they are, they advocate for common needs, and that includes resources and family supports. Now, thank you for listening to this little blurb. Y'all know I don't love reporting back from INSTAR because sometimes you think these science presentations are the gospel truth. They're actually new findings presented at meetings so that other scientists can learn and discuss and improve on the ideas. They are not the gospel truth. And in fact, most of what I reported has already been published or will be published soon. So I'm okay sharing it with you. And it's also just a sliver of the science. So I do feel badly. I want to make a final statement. Really, I promise this is my final statement. It was something that was brought up at the stakeholder luncheon. 
I realize that there is a feeling that science has not brought answers to the community, and when it does, it's slow. It feels like all these hundreds of millions of dollars have been wasted. I think that there probably there are some results that could have been used better, especially results that show no differences, as was brought up by Dr. Fair. And yes, sometimes ideas can be repeated or studied when they seem obvious. And that makes it just too damn long, and a lot of questions that I'm personally interested in seem like they get even more complex and are not providing real results. I think genetics gets targeted because it's true, for many people, genetics does not matter to, as much to them as things like being able to get an education or waiting list for interventions and supports. But I think of science as being the long game. This is a hard pill to swallow for all of us. And I'm not here to tell anyone to shut up or sit down and be patient. And I'm not saying that every cent of every dollar spent on research has led to completely meaningful findings. But I am going to say that we understand the complexity of autism much more than we did 30 years ago. Autism is not the same in every person. It's not experienced the same in every person. There was a time when autism was thought to be a three-gene disorder. It's not. There was a time when people thought that autism only happened to white men. Of course, it doesn't. There used to be no options for families except an institution. Thank goodness, now there is. Nothing is perfect. And I'm going to use a Peloton analogy. Sometimes I want to do a short 10-minute ride. I get a good workout. I get sweating. I get results. But as I get older, I feel like I need to do the longer rides. Maybe not as intense. Maybe not without club music bearing, blaring and a sassy gay man screaming at me to stand and move faster with lots of resistance. But they're the long and steady rides because they make my legs stronger and improve my endurance. I can listen to yacht rock or classic rock and go up hills and downhills. That's kind of an analogy to autism research. It's the long ride that makes us stronger, the accumulation of data over decades that helps shapes what we know. Genetics and early biomarkers that understand different forms of autism, again, that's the long ride. Early intervention and the ideas behind early intervention are the long ride because you have to follow those kids up for years and years. So don't give up on those long rides. We need to take the short rides and we need to take the long rides and appreciate them both. Thank you for listening. Next week, I will use my Southern drawl and maybe have eaten one vegetable in five days because that hasn't happened in last week. I ate more beef in five days than I do in a year. So it's time for me, me to break out the antacids. Thank you for listening to this kind of longer podcast, but... Summary of the International Society for Autism Research in 2020. Tell me.